good to see your faces this morning that have been partially covered most Sundays for quite some time now. Well, as you know, if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Second Peter, we have two more sermons and we're finished this book. I estimated that it would take about 10 to 12 sermons to go through this book, and I, I'm trying, I've tried to purpose not to dig too deep, but to get what we needed to retrieve from the Lord out of it. So this book will be a total of 14 sermons. Today is the 13th, so we have one more sermon on this book. <clears throat> And today we're going to look at the day of the Lord. I could have done the book in 12 sermons, but I thought this is such an important doctrine that impacts our lives. And we don't always realize how important the doctrine of the day of the Lord is. It's all throughout Scripture. And so I've spent, I want to spend just a little extra time in examining what the day of the Lord means. We've looked at it already in part. But I think that it is powerful, it's more powerful than we, we realize in the sense that whenever somebody starts talking about the day of the Lord, we rightly look at, at, look at it as something to come. It's in the future, and it operates uh, like a thief in the night, so we don't know exactly when it's going to come, but we know it's something in the future. So we have a tendency to, to kind of keep the day of the Lord at bay. And we know that Scripture says when it comes, it's going to change the world as we know it. Talk about changes. We've seen strange things happen the last several years, really in my lifetime. But the day of the Lord will change the world as we know it for better. We've talked about that. But what Peter talks about in the passage this morning is that it, it doesn't just change the world in the future. The day of the Lord, the truth of the doctrine of the return of Christ, is aimed at also changing the world as we know it presently. It is aimed at changing the hearts of believers so that we live today based on what we know is to come in the future. So not only does it have a profound impact in the future. But this doctrine should change us today. This doctrine should change the way we think, the way we act. It should change our, or at least realign our goals and our ambitions for life. And that is how God intended it. And I appreciate the way that Peter brings this out as he writes to a church. A church just following the days of Christ New church, getting established, pouring itself into the Word of God, trying to understand what, who God is and what He's all about, what does salvation mean. And Peter writes these words to these saints. These words, I will say, are for the sanctification of those who are already saved. Now, I remember um, in school they would say, preach so that the lost might be saved but also that the saved might be sanctified. And a lot of times we have messages about salvation that the saved already understand. So this is one of those messages for those of you that have given your heart to Christ. This is something that, that God wants us to embrace. Peter brings this out. 
You know, in, in God's economy, the day of the Lord is about everything. God's so holy. He's so wise. He's so powerful. Everything that has ever happened. And God is very calculated. Everything that has ever happened in the universe since he created it will be judged. Good and bad. It's going to be judged. And all of his creatures will give an account to him. He's the king. Please hang about that. He sits on the throne. And so everything that exists owes its allegiance to him. And that's what the day of the Lord is about. It's about a day of great justice. Justice will be served in the day of the Lord. Justice. That's something that we hear a lot about today in our culture. It's, it's kind of risen back up to the top, this idea of justice. Actually, injustice. We hear more about the injustices in our culture than the justice. So really, our, our culture needs to understand this teaching as much as the church, especially our American culture, as we, we wrestle with the injustices that are uh, brought to our attention about those in power abusing their power and not being held accountable. And without getting into the politics of what is approach is right and what approach is wrong, I think it's very interesting that we live in a culture uh, that for all intents and purposes rejects God, at least in, our, in a lot of our leadership, rejects God. And yet we are forming ourselves into certain groups to fight for justice. But what is justice? Isn't that interesting? In a relative culture that refuses to say that any particular group of beliefs are absolutely correct and right, and therefore we should all conform to them, and yet there's an uproar about justice. Justice is about the, the scales, scales of justice. There are those who deserve to be rewarded for the right and the good they do. And there are those who deserve to be punished for the evil and the wrong that we do. The very fact that we crave justice as a society, even as partially lost society, it just merely reflects the image of God in us. It, it's a people created in the image of God, that are crying out for right and goodness, for fairness, even though we, by and large, reject God. So we, we really need God to help us in this area, to help us understand justice, to help us understand what's right and wrong. What gets punished? And what gets rewarded in the end? So our, our demand for justice comes from a culture that, by and large, rejects God. But we can't decide what justice is, we, and therefore we can't decide how it ought to be administered, who gets it, who's guilty, and who is righteous. And that's why this message is so important, because it, it teaches those who are willing to believe in the Word of God that God's going to sort it all out. He already knows, he, nothing catches him off guard, and, the end, and in the end, no matter 
where we landed in life, our righteous God, holy and good, is going to sort it all out, put everything in its perfect place. In the meantime, I think as we think about justice, and I'm just kind of rambling a little bit, important stuff, but not quite into our verses yet, because we're, we're wrestling with this justice. We're wrestling with the day of the Lord. And we're gonna, Peter's going to tell us what we ought to be doing based on this doctrine. But what we see in the world for, uh, what I see in the world for those that have this yearning for justice but don't really have a proper place for it because maybe they've rejected God, is you get, I think, two groups. One group we, we see often is just the group who settles for the world as it is. Look, it's just broken. Not a thing we can do about it. No need to hope for any change. You just make the best of it. And that's where some people land. They're overcome with this idea of brokenness and injustice. We just got to do the best we can. So there's not hope and there's not fight. There's not fight to make wrong right. And then on the other side, you have the group that really has a sense of justice and they are fighting like crazy and battling over every little issue of right and wrong because they want justice in the world. And a lot of times that group, which is so zealous, eventually just burns out because what they begin to realize is, wow, this world is really broken. And I have been giving my whole life to justice and I I don't seem to be making much headway. And there are still so many things that just get swept under the carpet. And so you have one group that kind of doesn't care. And then another group that cares, I guess maybe you'd say too much in the wrong way and often gets burned out. So there needs to be a balance. And that's what this passage is about. It's, It's a balance. There needs to be a fight for the good in this world, but also an understanding that It is still broken and we're never going to perfect it with our own efforts. And and in God's plan, we are going along, we're drifting along as a world. There are certain currents that will continue until the Lord comes back. So really, really, we have the best of both worlds. We have this hope that even now things can change for the better. Absolutely, that's the power of God in Christ. That things can change for the better. And so as believers, we want to fight. But we don't get totally discouraged and give up the fight because we realize, well, you know what? I may have missed this or I ran out of energy, but God's not going to run out of energy. And these things that are getting swept under the carpet, they w- there is a day when they will give account. So we live with that hope. So God, as judge, affects us very much. Today, even in our uh, justice-minded culture and events. We were reminded this morning um, in our worship songs, and it was so good to hear the body of Christ sing about the forgiveness of Christ. Because God's answer to the brokenness and those that cannot perfect themselves is that he forgives us and he takes the punishment for our sin. And some of today's passage is about getting right with God before the day comes because it comes like a thief in the night. We don't know. So the whole message is because you don't know 
be prepared today. How do we prepare ourselves? We prepare ourselves by acknowledging that God is the one and only God, the true creator, the savior of those who have sinned, which is all of humanity. And when we acknowledge that, he grants us grace and mercy. And by the acts of Christ, he, for, he grants forgiveness. We don't even deserve it. He grants it because Christ took our punishment. So you see the justice is met on the cross. It's not that we get away with our sin. No, Christ pays for our sin, past, present, and future. We were kicked out of the garden for our unrighteousness. God had that command. You can eat from all the trees but this one. And that one looked the same as all the others. It was a matter of obedience. It was a matter of allegiance. That he's God and we're not. And we have a place in this world. And so Adam and Eve failed in that. And that sin nature passed on. But how do you get back into the garden? We're east of Eden. How do you get back into the garden? Well, you've got to be perfectly righteous again. How can you be perfectly righteous? Some people say, well, it's hard work, but I can do that. And that's self-righteousness. If that's what it takes to get back to God, it take a lot of grit and willpower, but I, can, I think I can do that. I can earn my way back into paradise. And the message of the gospel is, no, you can't. Sin is too deep. You're not seeing the depth of your own sin. So how do I get back into the garden? You have to have righteousness. You can't get on your own. Christ is willing to clothe you in his righteousness. He's willing to give it to you as a gift. But what you do is you come back under the king. Come back under his throne. And you believe again that everything he says is good and perfect. Even if my flesh resists it. The gospel and the day of the Lord. We find in scripture that the day of the Lord or eschatology, the teachings of the end, are often used in the present. Let's see how Peter does that in our passage. We are in 2 Peter 3, 11 through 14. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Wow. Without spot, spot or blemish and at peace. We don't hear much about peace these days, do we? It's all this the, the, the divisiveness and, and fighting and tribalism. And yet Peter says peace can be found. Matter of fact, when Christ returns, he wants to find us in a state of peace. So in this idea of oughtness, and I really like that word ought. There And that's kind of why I chose it as a title, the Judgment Day of Oughtness. <clears throat> I want to see the why, the what, and the how of this. 
So what kind of oughtness are we living by today? What do we sense when we wake up in the morning that we ought to be doing with our lives? What's Peter's point? Well, in this present day, while we're waiting for the day of the Lord, there are absolutely things that believers, that disciples ought to be compelled to do. And that's what oughtness means. It's that it's a compulsion of something that I feel obligated to do. That could be an external oughtness. And we live with oughtnesses. Okay, there are things that we feel like obligated and compelled to do. They could be cultural things. They can be biblical things, so forth. So externally, uh, we, we might do things or make decisions and feel like we ought to do this because this is what our cult is acceptable or applauded in our culture. Now, so, for instance, in our southern culture, if somebody saw a female coming up uh, to the door, a man might feel like, I ought to get up and open the door for this person. Or uh, you might be in your seat, we're overcrowded, and an elderly couple walks in, and you feel this, I ought to give my seat to this couple here. So it's something we feel compelled to do because either in our culture, it's looked at upon as a good and a right thing to do, uh, or our own hearts. It's also internally. In some things, we have personal convictions. Uh, there are things that we might do because we believe before God that we ought to do them that hardly anybody else does. But for us, it is the right thing to do. We have come to a conclusion. Oughtness has to do with the idea of thinking things through and coming to a conclusion. Here's what I'm going to do when this, when this happens. When I'm faced with this scenario. It's a personal conviction uh, of right and wrong, perhaps for the good of all. And we make this conclusion based on facts. So Peter is saying, based on the facts, and if you believe in God's word, these are truths, these are facts, what God says, it's a promise, it will happen. So based on the fact that God has spoken and revealed these words to you, there is a, we should be under a sense of compulsion and oughtness, a personal conviction of how that should change our lives. Why? Why should we live holy? Why should we strive to be without spot or blemish? Well, because Jesus is coming back. And we can prepare ourselves for that now. We don't want to wait till the last hour. We can prepare ourselves and please him in our, south, our state of salvation even now. We live lives of holiness. So what is the, the, the why live godly? What's the motivation here? Well, one of the things Peter tells us that is extremely practical and helpful is that when the day of the Lord comes, not everything is going to remain. So in other words, there are things that we may be applying ourselves to um, in this world, and things in this world have their place. But there could be things that we're putting great effort into that actually will not last and have 
Zero significance in heaven. Zero currency. So, to put it in different terms, there may be people that are saving, working really hard and saving up Earth's currency to set themselves for the future, and yet when you get there, it's wooden nickels. There's absolutely no value in the kingdom of heaven for some of the things that we may find ourselves doing here on earth. We already looked at the change that's going to take place in when the day of the Lord comes, people, bodies, beings will be judged. But now Peter's talking about works, the things that the people did with their lives. The heavens will pass away, verse 10. The heavenly bodies will burn up. We already talked about that. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see why the, the Christian life is so conclusive? Because everything matters under the sun. Everything matters to Christ. What, what we build, uh, what we knock down, these things they, they have an impact even into eternity. And this is a motivation, of course, to study the scriptures and find that which will last. So that we take it with us. It has a value there. And begin to get rid of the things that really don't matter. Now, what do we find in our, our world? Uh, we find individuals giving themselves to things that have no heavenly value or worth. Maybe even given, giving of their whole lives to this and completely forsaking the things, the characteristics, which you'll find have to do with the fruits of the Spirit. It, well, it's godliness. It's anything that's wrought of God. So we have people, individuals, that are giving their whole lives, their energy, their, their mental abilities to things that they cannot take with them. So some people, we all want to find meaning in this life, we, we work as humanity. We want to think, my life counts. Don't tell me my life doesn't count. I want, I want to know that I'm here for a reason and that what I do is, has some kind of significance. We just don't always draw the right conclusion in trying to reach that goal. So you have some people uh, that may spend uh, their entire lives um, building up a riches or wealth or a strong portfolio or having good credit, having great credit in this world, financial credit uh, doesn't, doesn't translate into heaven. But you can have people that give their lives to, I want to know that my life counted for something, so I'm going to build great structures. Or leaving behind um, artwork for all to admire and look at. Now, these things have a place in this world. But they do not translate into heaven because that's the kind of things that get destroyed. And the way it ties into this passage is that the works, only the works that are wrought for the glory of God, the motivation of the heart, lasts. Anything that is of God transpires into or translates into Heaven, that's what matters. What carries over? So we want to evaluate our lives with this passage and thinking, what am I doing with my day on a daily basis that is wrought of God 
where I'm allowing God to change my character because your character is what your, your being goes to heaven. What lasts and what passes away? We, we might be collecting things, achieving things that have maybe good standing in this earth. But it's not for the glory of God. Great earthly powers and riches. There might be people that think I've built this great, this great thing. I've done a great thing in this world. But have never given their hearts or lives to God. What does it mean? It dissolves. The things that aren't destroyed are the things that are done for the glory of God in Jesus' name. That's godliness. And as we live that way, it changes our hearts. It turns us into that new creation. The salvation is just the beginning of what Christ is going to do. It's the beginning of the newness. It's the beginning of the peace and the blessings that God has for us. There's a pithy statement that perhaps you've heard of this before. Sometimes you'll see it hanging in households. Only one life. Twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Nailed it. Only what's done for Christ will last. And Job puts it even more uh, bluntly in 121. Naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's what matters in life. We have all these things. But what really matters is our hearts toward God. Are we living a life of praise to God? So there's, there's this, for Christians, an altness to live holy. To live pleasing to God. To make those decisions with our lives. Use our time towards that. That's the why we we. We live holy because there are things that aren't going to last. And there are things that are. And the holy things do. Second, the what of oughtness. So I like the way Peter puts us under the, uh, the eye of eternity. As believers, we have to live with one eye, whatever, or part of our minds. In light of how it all pans out. In light of eternity. We cannot afford to get sucked in and too focused on the here and now. We want to devote ourselves to things that last. Here's how Jesus put it. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. See, Jesus is telling us there's things here that are just not going to last. You're spending all your time on it? How about this? The things that transpire into heaven where neither moth or rust destroy where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also i think that's the verse down on the guys retreat isn't it uh, there's a flyer out there for the guys retreat in front and that's it where your where your uh, treasure is that's where your heart is isn't it uh, it, it, it's kind of liberating, but honestly, sometimes annoying as a sinner. The way Jesus always drags our hearts into it. It's like he doesn't let us get away with deceiving ourselves. And he just lays it out there. Look, 
What are you seeking? What are you doing with your life? Where's the fruit? Well, that's because that's where your heart is. And if your heart's not really seeking God, you're, you're just living deceptively. But when you're, you're planting, you know, your, your holy gold coins in the ground in the name of Christ, well, you can expect a harvest. When you're denying some of the pleasures of the world, when you're refusing to follow cultural fads that are not godly, that's actually building up treasures in heaven. Every day our heart is wrestling with decisions to make. How to parent? What's my marriage going to look like? What's my church life going to look like? How committed am I to the body of Christ? These are real things that make an impact in the everyday life. And we will give account. So there's this oughtness. And Jesus just, he just drug our hearts, drug our hearts right into this passage. Where is our thinking? If we're fixated in the here and now, there's no here and now problem that's not going to be resolved. So we we don't lose hope, Paul says. That's why. How can we not lose hope when no matter what direction, when we get back into 2 Corinthians, you'll be reminded that Paul got to a place, the Apostle Paul got to a place in his life where no matter what direction he looked, he saw no hope. But he kept his hope because God met him when he was absolutely empty with the truth, I am with you. There's always hope. Life in this world, this is not the final word. The best thing we can do for our hearts, according to Jesus, not going to hear this from the world, the best way you can take care of your heart is to love Christ. Treasure God. I mean, that's the absolute bottom line best we can do for ourselves. If we really love ourselves properly and correctly, then we're going to take our hearts and give it to God. That's how it works. And that's how the world is supposed to work. And then lastly, the how of oughtness. So how is this possible? How can I... How can I change like this? How can I change my thinking? How can I become kingdom-focused, treasure-motivated? According to his promises, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But one of our motivations, of course, it is his divine power that enables us, but one of our motivations to live like this is not so much because of the destruction that's going to happen, but because of the good that will be brought forth. We are talking about paradise again. We don't know paradise in this world. We get little glimpses of heaven by God's grace, and I thank him for it, where he just breaks through and does something wonderful. Might be a miracle. Might be a freedom from sin. But this is not paradise. And we have this motivation to live like this so that paradise comes Upon us again. We have righteousness. You can look at righteousness in the form of the fact that people will no longer sin. So righteousness, the the kingdom of God is righteousness. We will no longer offend one another or God. But righteousness is also the person of Christ. So it's not just us sanctified in heaven. It is us with 
Christ, the person of Christ. We sang that song about Christ dwelling with us. It is an amazing thing, the gospel story, that this holy God comes down into our dirt, into our mess, and lives among us and drives nails among us, works among us, sweats, hungers, grieves. That's how he came the first time. But then when he comes back, it's not to stay, it's to bring us up into the kingdom of heaven and righteousness. And because of that motivation, we ought to live every day here and now with holiness and godliness in mind. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish or peace. So, in other words, yes, we're waiting, but while we're waiting, it's not a passive waiting by any means. It's an aggressive waiting. Peter already reminded us that if you're a believer, you actually can't just, there's no such thing as Christian floaties. You are in a world of evil. You will be taken by the current. You have to swim constantly against the tide towards godliness. So it's a personal, it's a present personal godliness. How do we do that? Well, John says, by living according to love, by walking in the light. I mean, every day we have these decisions. Well, the Bible calls that wrong or evil. I want it, but what kind of decision am I going to make? And yet the Bible calls this right and pleasing to God. It's walking in the light. It's being that salt. Jude says, by keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord until eternal life. And it's possible because what Peter already mentioned in the first chapter, that his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So it's begun. Salvation has already begun. The kingdom has already begun and we're a part of it. And we can live in it. And we're already making kingdom Kingdom decisions every day with our life. So God fills us with zeal and for a longing for the good things that we're missing out. And the things that on this earth, the works that are done in Jesus' name, they came about because of his divine power. So there's a sense, and this gets a little, uh, you got to think about it. There's a sense in which the works of Christ that we, we perform here on earth actually were thought up in heaven. And then God, we are God's instruments here on earth. So they're heavenly things that we are, we are accomplishing on earth. We were creating Christ Jesus for good works, uh, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God prepared them. God thought about all the good works that we will do on this earth. So they're wrought in heaven, but they're performed here. And it reminds me a little bit of Tolkien's story of um, the Hobbit in the trilogy, where that ring, the only way to truly destroy it was to bring it back to the original place it was wrought in the fires. And there's a sense in which the original place that our good works were wrought, they're going to go back to their place of origin. That's what can make it into heaven. And they go back to their place of origin in heaven. So only fruits of holiness will remain and Peter doesn't, like this isn't even a command, which is, is intriguing to me. Because 
the apostles, they'll give commands. He's just saying, look, this is what's going to happen. And because it's going to happen, draw this conclusion with me. Draw this conclusion with me on your own, in your own heart and your mind. Be holy. This is how we ought to live as we wait for the coming of the day of the Lord. Make haste, hastening it. What, how can you hasten the day of the Lord? That's actually a great question. How can we hasten? Because there are those who think that if we, if we do certain things, we are actually kind of calling God's hand and now he has to fulfill a certain promise or prophecy because we got our ducks in a row, so to speak. But let me just quickly explain, hey, how do we hasten the day of the Lord? Well, there are appointed times and seasons, right, in God's plan of decree. So there's a sense in which no matter what we do or don't do, God does his thing. But the idea of hasting the day of the Lord means that we are joining in God. We are making the, the, the atmosphere or the climate more favorable for God to fulfill the promise of the second coming. But he still makes the final decision. So in the bottom line is, can humanity ever get to a place where we are so negligent in being diligent that Christ will just change his mind? Does he keep scratching the day of the Lord off the calendar and changing it? Oh, well, they're doing pretty good. So I think I'll come back a little earlier or know they're doing terrible. So it, God already has appointed times, just like when Jesus came. It was exactly the day. But as we live lives of holiness, zealous to do kingdom things, it makes that then we're doing our part, but the final decision is still up to God. It, it helps and it counts, but it's not a tool of manipulation to where we can say, well, we just preach the gospel, say we preach the gospel to the whole world and now you have to come back. God is still sovereign. He's being patient. The way that we make the terms favorable for that is to obey him. Because what did Peter tell us? Why is Jesus not back today? It's the age of salvation. That's the next message, the final message. The age of salvation. And he's just patiently waiting for those of you who have not bowed the knee to come in. That's it. He tells us right in Scripture. Peter said, no, he's not, he's not being lazy. He's not... Uh, passive, he's not uh, changing his mind, he's waiting for you to bow the knee. He wants you in. Isn't that crazy? That's the love of God. He makes the final call. So, why does God give us this, these facts and this information as we, we wind down here? Does he tell us about the day of the Lord so we live in terror? Oh my goodness, the day that's gonna everything's gonna heat up and it's gonna be and I don't even know if I'm saved. Does, is that why he tells us this? Does he does he tell us uh, so that we'll be obsessed with um, trying to figure out the day and the time, like some people are, that he doesn't reveal to us? John Newton, I'm sure you've heard his name before, the author of Amazing Grace. Uh, he says, Judgment Day is like having a beautiful telescope. It's on a, on a pedestal for all 
to see and admire, but never actually look into it. He says we often marvel at a distance. We just have the information of it. If we believe in the day of judgment, but never really look into it, never really use it on ourselves, what happens? Not much. We just have information. But when you look at this doctrine and you take it in and you view it and you apply it to yourself and you say, this affects me, this means me, this is me in God's story, then it changes our lives. It makes us more stable. Peter said, don't be unstable. It makes us more stable, not getting caught up in the different extremes of the world. It enables us to forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven. So in this world, we, we are more prone to forgive, and it makes us holy because God commands us to be holy in 1 Peter 1.16, but also we ought to live in this way as we are ready. We close with a quote from Timothy Keller. So make sure when you get up in the morning, you're not doing anything you will be ashamed of if tonight is the world's last night and today is the world's last day. And if this is the last act of your life, so living with the end in mind makes us holy today. That's how we build on the rock of the altness of the coming of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word.